Sometimes we can be looking for something when that something is right there the whole time. There are times in my life, and I think now I'm speaking probably for most of us, if not all of us, who have a spiritual sensitivity with God, that there are times in my life where God doesn't feel very close. Is that wrong for a pastor to say that? That there are times in my life when it feels like God is a million miles away. There are times in my life when it feels like maybe my prayers aren't getting past the ceiling. And, and if you've ever felt that way, you know sometimes it comes in times of tragedy. Whenever we're overwhelmed with grief and we wonder where is God in all of this and we just can't seem to feel God. Sometimes that feeling though comes in times of disappointment. You, you thought life was going to work out this way and some problem has occurred or some uh, plot twist has occurred in your life and things aren't working out like you had thought. And in that moment of disappointment and disillusionment, you wonder, where is God in all of this? This is not what I thought life was going to look like at this stage for us. Maybe in your family, maybe in your marriage, maybe in your career, maybe in your finances. And in those moments of disappointment, God can feel distant. And then sometimes, just to be honest, it doesn't really have to be anything big or major. We go through seasons of life where we feel close to God and, and we're on fire for God. And then there are other seasons of our life where we can feel like it's just not the same as it was in that other season. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I'm just being honest with you about the experiences that I've gone through in life before. And I hope that if you've ever found yourself in that situation, that you won't give in to that feeling that God is a million miles away. He may feel that way, but that doesn't make it true. Sometimes it's just my perception that's flawed. And the reason I tell you that is because every week I deal with people who are just struggling. And I think that's normal for pastors to deal with people who are struggling in their faith. Life is not working out for them. Or they're going through difficult times. Or they've lost a loved one. Or they've lost a job. Or they get overwhelmed with the evil that they see in our world. And in those moments they start wondering, God, where are you? You don't, you don't feel close. I don't know why you aren't showing up and showing off and doing something in my life that would help me to regain that feeling of closeness to you. And so if you've ever felt that way, I've got some good news for you. You're not the only one. And you're not the first one. Would it surprise you to know that even in the Scriptures, the first followers of Jesus experienced that same feeling. God, where are you? God, why didn't you come through for us? God, why didn't you do what we thought you were going to do? Why didn't you hear our prayers? Why didn't you live up to our expectations when it comes to the Messiah, to Jesus? I want to take you today to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. We're still in the Easter story. And this is Resurrection Sunday in Luke chapter 24. And here in uh, this passage of Scripture, verses 13 through 35, we encounter two people who are leaving Jerusalem on Resurrection Sunday, not believing that Jesus has risen from the dead. They're leaving discouraged and disillusioned and disappointed. In fact, they're leaving hopeless. 
And they're turning their back, not only on the city of Jerusalem, where they had gone to worship God at the Passover and celebrated the entrance of Jesus, thinking He's the Messiah, He's the Redeemer of Israel, only to watch everything crash and burn when Jesus was betrayed and arrested, condemned to die and crucified by the Romans. And now they're leaving and walking away from all of that, hopeless. And an amazing thing happens. They feel so separated from God in the presence of Jesus that they don't even recognize that He's there with them, literally. And what Jesus does for them, I think He wants to do for me and for you. He wants to found our faith on something stronger than feelings. He wants to found our faith on something stronger than our circumstances. And I want you to see what He wants us to place our faith in as we walk through these verses together. Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 13, we read these words, That very day, this is Resurrection Sunday, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. We're only told here that these are two people. We don't uh, know the name of one of them, but we do know the name of another. His name is Cleopas. We'll see that in just a moment. But the other person with Cleopas, we don't know if this is Cleopas and his friend, or if this is Cleopas and his spouse. In fact, I think maybe the gospel writer Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, leaves that second name out so you can put your name in the story and join these two on the road to Emmaus. Verse 14, And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Verse 15, And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. It's an amazing picture. Two people leaving Jerusalem with discouraged hearts, and they're talking with each other on this seven mile journey back home about these things that had happened. Specifically, they're talking about what had happened to Jesus. They're rehearsing all of the wonderful things of his life that they had learned about Jesus. He's a great teacher. He's a prophet of God. He had performed miracles. He, he had touched and healed lepers of their foul disease. He had raised the dead. He had fed thousands of people with a little boy's lunch. We've heard him that he walked on water. We, we've heard his sermons and then he walked into Jerusalem triumphant just a week ago. And all of us were so excited that we proclaimed, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the Messiah that we have longed for as a nation for hundreds of years. This is the promised Messiah. And all of our hopes and dreams for a better day were fanned into flame by Jesus. Every word he spoke, every miracle he performed just reinforced that our faith in him was well-founded. And then it seemed like everything spiraled out of control. How did this happen? How did he go from being hailed, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to being condemned and crucified and killed? And not only did Jesus die on that windswept hill outside the city walls of Jerusalem, but their hopes died with him. Their hopes that they would be set free from Roman oppression. Their hopes that Israel would be an independent nation once again. Their, their hopes that they would be able to worship God fully and freely without the oppressive Roman Empire. 
peering over their shoulder and holding them back. They're talking about these things. And while they're talking, while they're walking, Jesus shows up, but they don't recognize it's Jesus. Maybe they don't recognize it's Jesus because of their discouraged hearts. And maybe they don't recognize it's Jesus because of their grief. Maybe they don't recognize it's Jesus because of all the heartache and hopelessness that they now feel. Sometimes grief and pain can do that to us. It can make us feel that God is a million miles away when He's right there the whole time. But it's hard sometimes when you're overwhelmed with emotion or stress or pain or anxiety to feel God's presence. But I think it's interesting how Luke records that in verse 16. But their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. Their eyes were restrained. Their eyes were held back from recognizing Jesus. I don't think it's just their grief that keeps them from recognizing Him. I think Jesus is at work here. I think Jesus is keeping them, preventing them, holding them back from fully understanding who He is at this moment because He wants to teach them a lesson. He wants their faith to be in something stronger than their feelings or their circumstances or even their eyesight. He wants their faith to be on a firmer foundation than that. So He's holding their sight back. Verse 17 And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? (laughs) And they stood still, looking sad. Jesus asked them the question, hey, what is it you guys are talking about? And they just stopped dead in their tracks. And look at Jesus with this sad, gloomy face. And then, verse 18, then one of them named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? They're going, are you kidding? What do you mean, what are we talking about? Are you the only person? It would be like you walking up to someone on the city streets of New York City on September the 12th, 2001, saying, what's everybody so sad about? They would go, are you crazy? Have you been living under a rock? Are you the only person in New York City who's not heard about the terrorist attack? That's the same impression that these two get when the stranger asks them, why are you guys so sad? What is it that has occupied your conversation? Verse 19, and he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God. And all the people. I find it interesting. They're correct about Jesus when they call him a prophet. That he was a prophet sent by God to foretell what God was up to. But notice what they don't call Jesus now. They no longer call him Messiah. They no longer call him the Christ. Blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. They've lost that hope. That hope is dead. Now he's just a prophet who was powerful in what he preached and powerful in what he did before God and all the people. Verse 20, And and how our chief priest and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Verse 21, here are some sad words. But we had hoped. Do you hear that? We had hoped. Past tense. We don't hope anymore. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. 
We had hoped he was the one who would pay the price for our freedom as a nation. Freedom from Rome. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. It's easy for people to lose hope when bad things happen, when tragedies occur, when life doesn't work out like we thought it should, when problems strike us. It's easy to lose hope, not only in ourselves and other people, but even to lose hope in God. I had hoped my marriage would work, but I don't hope anymore. I had hoped that I was going to be healed of this sickness, but I don't hope anymore. I had hoped that we could restore this relationship, but I don't hope anymore. And I had hoped that God would come through in a way that I thought He would, but I don't have that hope anymore. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe it's chronic illness. But it's easy to lose hope. Verse 22, they they continue telling Jesus what they're talking about. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find His body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that He was alive. Verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But Him, referring to Jesus, but Him They did not see. Listen, yeah, we had these hopes in Jesus being our Redeemer and our Messiah, but we don't hope anymore. And yes, we've heard some rumors even today from some women who went to the tomb early today and they they said the tomb is empty. They said they saw an angel. They said the angel said that he has risen from the dead. A couple of our friends went and looked into the tomb and and they said, yeah, the tomb was empty too. By the way, they're referring to, to Peter and John who ran to the tomb that morning and found it just as they had said. And by the way, if you're a first century Jew, you would be living in a culture that was highly suspicious of the reliability of a woman's testimony. In that culture, sadly, wrongly, women were treated more as second-class citizens. There were some rabbi scholars who said women's testimony could be trustworthy. There were others who said absolutely not. Never trust a woman She's, she's fickle, she's given to her emotions, and you can't trust women. The point I'm making is maybe this morning you're a skeptic of whether or not the resurrection story is true, or maybe it's just a myth that people made up in order to gain power. Well, well if you're going to make up a story in the first century in Judaism, in Israel, this is not how you make up the story. You don't have the first two people who testify of the resurrected Jesus being women. You would have two of the apostles. You would have two of the chosen of Jesus. Two of the men of respect. We saw it, and and that would give the testimony credibility. But you've undermined your credibility from the beginning in that culture. So why is it that two women are said to have been the first eyewitnesses? It's because that's how it happened. It's just history. Like it or not, pretty or not, it's just how it happened. And if you're also a skeptic about the Christian faith, you need to recognize none of the early followers of Jesus expected Jesus to rise from the dead. They all disbelieve. They are all discouraged. None of them are down at the tomb that morning counting for the sunrise. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, waiting for Jesus to pop out. They didn't believe he would rise from the dead. And even though these two guys or these two people, one man at least, we don't know if the other was a man or a woman, these two on the road to Emmaus, they don't believe even though they've heard the rumors. 
even though they've heard the testimony of the women. Him they did not see. And then Jesus, still not revealing himself to them fully, scolds them. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. It's Jesus' way of saying, you're acting foolish here. Why are you so slow to believe what the prophets of the Old Testament have said would happen? For hundreds of years, they've given the consistent testimony that God was going to intervene in human history through a suffering servant. Why don't you believe this? Why don't you believe the testimony of the Scriptures? Verse 26, Jesus continues, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? It's necessary because it fulfills the promise of Scripture from the Old Testament that the Messiah would be a suffering Savior. But it's also necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into His glory because it's necessary for a sacrifice to be made for the sins of the world. A sacrifice that bulls and goats and sheep could not do, but foreshadowed what only the Lamb of God, Jesus, could do. Was it not necessary? And then Jesus gives them a Bible study. Verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, this is shorthand for saying Jesus takes them through the Old Testament, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. He says, hey boys, or hey, hey you two, because I don't know if Cleopas was with a friend, a guy friend, or if he's with his wife, we don't know. But hey you two, let me take you through the Old Testament. Don't you remember, let's start with Genesis, for example. Don't you remember after Eve was deceived and Eve and Adam disobeyed God and sin entered into the world that God promised that one day there will be a descendant from Eve who would crush Satan? The serpent. Don't you remember that? Don't you remember Noah's ark? That God is a holy and righteous God and he will judge sin, but God is also a gracious, merciful, loving God and he provides a way of escape? Don't you remember Abraham, a pagan moon worshiper from Mesopotamia? And yet God revealed to him there's only one true living God and I am that God and I am by grace choosing you to be the father of a great nation. And I'll give you a land and I'll bless you and I'll bless those who bless you. And through your descendants, I will send the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior of the world. Don't you remember Joseph betrayed by his own brothers? But what men meant for evil, God meant for good. Just like Jesus was betrayed by a friend, but what men meant for evil... God meant for good? Don't you remember Psalm 22? Verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that not recall what Jesus prayed on the cross of Calvary? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't you remember Isaiah 53? Who has believed our report? Our report, And to whom is the strength of the Lord revealed? For the Messiah will grow up like a tender plant. And he will be crushed and he'll be bruised and he'll be pierced through and he'll be wounded for us. Don't you remember? And he takes them on a Bible study. 
to help them understand this was not an accident what happened to Jesus. It was a fulfillment of the promises of God and the plan of God. And how all the Old Testament scriptures really had one person in mind. It's all about the person of the Messiah. What a Bible study that would have been. Verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. Hey, we've arrived at your home, but I'll see you guys later. I'm going to keep going. I think Jesus was wanting to gauge whether or not these two really wanted to know more about the Scriptures and about God's plan and how God works in our world, or if they would rather just commiserate in their misery. And to let Jesus go on, this one who has taught them so much about the Scriptures, helping them put the puzzle pieces together, to let him go on would show they're not really interested in getting answers. If they were really interested in getting answers and understanding what happened in Jerusalem and what happened to Jesus, they would want this Bible study to continue. So how do they respond when he acted as if he were going farther? Verse 29 says, But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Verse 30, when he was at table with them, talking about a meal, when he was at table with them, he, now think about this, this is Jesus now, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Wait a minute, this isn't Jesus' home. He's a guest in this home. But now the guest is turned into the host. And at the table, Jesus takes bread and he blesses it. And he asks God the Father to bless this fellowship, and to bless this meal. And he broke that bread and he gave it to them. Verse 31 says, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. It was in the breaking of bread, this one who had taught them the scriptures that they realized this is Jesus. It hearkened them back to when Jesus took a little boy's lunch and he broke the bread and he fed over 5,000 people with fragments left over. And it most certainly reminded them on the night when Jesus was with his disciples in that upper room having finished the Passover meal that he cleared the table and he took simple bread and wine and he broke it and he blessed it and he gave it to them and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And in that moment, their eyes are opened. Jesus allows them to realize it's him. It's been him the whole time. He felt a million miles away. He felt like he was dead and gone. He, they felt like it was all over, but he was there with them the whole time. He's the conquering king of kings and lord of lords. He is the ever-present God. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And they realize it in that very moment. It all finally makes sense to them. And then about the moment they recognize it's Jesus, poof, he's gone. And literally it's poof, he's gone. He didn't just get up and say, okay, I got to go. He vanished because he has a glorified body. It is still a physical body, but it is now a glorified body that will never be touched again by pain or sorrow or death. And his glorified body has the ability to show up and to disappear, to show up behind locked doors 
to rise physically back to the Father in heaven 40 days later. Oh, and by the way, that is a glimpse of the kind of body we're going to get one day when Jesus comes back. You say, that's too good to be true. I would believe it was too good to be true if Jesus didn't already do it. He rose from the dead. One of my favorite movies is The Sixth Sense. I don't know if you remember that. It was from 1999. Bruce Willis plays a child psychologist, which is absolutely believable. Yeah. If you're picking out a child psychologist, you pick Bruce Willis. And uh, so he's the child psychologist, and he's had a tragic patient, a little boy, that, a young boy that uh, had died. So he's wanting to redeem himself. So he's trying to help this new young boy patient named Cole Sear. And as the movie, and by the way, if you've not seen the movie, spoiler alert, but come on, it's been, it's been years now. I'm just, I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, but he's wanted to help Cole, and eventually he builds enough trust with Cole that Cole reveals his secret to his psychologist. And his secret, Cole said, I see dead people. And Bruce Willis's character says, you see dead people. You mean in cemeteries and in caskets? And Cole said, no. Walking around. They're everywhere. I see them all the time. And they don't know they're dead. And in the plot twist in the movie, we finally realize that Bruce Willis' character is actually one of the dead that Cole sees. And Bruce doesn't know it until this moment when he realizes. And then you start seeing these flashbacks from the earlier parts of the movie, and it all starts making sense now. You see the movie in an absolutely different light when you know Cole's secret. And listen, the resurrection story of Jesus is the absolute opposite. When we come to the end of Jesus, we don't find Him dead after all. We find Him alive. And when you hear and see and understand that plot twist, you can then go back into the Old Testament and you see it in a totally new light. Not that it wasn't always there. Not that God's promises weren't always plain for you in the pages of Scripture. But now, because Jesus lives and you know it, you read your Bible in a totally new light. And you see Jesus in a way you've never seen Him before. And there are times that I have to remind myself and I have to remind you that whenever we are perplexed with our current situation and we feel God is a million miles away and we don't understand what God is up to, we go back to the Scriptures and we say, if Jesus could pull that off, He can take care of everything else in my life. I can trust Him. Because the story of Easter is that yes, There's going to be suffering in this world, but suffering will one day be replaced by glory. Crucifixion will one day give way to coronation. Death will one day give way to life. I don't always understand God's timing. I don't always understand God's ways. But when I know Jesus and when I know the Scriptures, I have a peace that passes all understanding. And I come to know Him in a deeper way. Jesus wanted His disciples to have a trust, a faith, a confidence in Him that was deeper than eyesight, that was deeper than their feelings. He wanted them to have confidence in the testimony of His resurrection 
and in the Scriptures that teach about Him. Because Jesus knew there was going to come a day for His first disciples that they would not be able to see Him. He was going to physically rise to the Father in heaven. And He would no longer be with them. What would they do then? They would need to put their faith in what Jesus had said and what Jesus had done. And Luke is writing his gospel primarily to Gentiles like you and me. And he's writing for people who would live after all of these events took place. And he knew that we would not have the benefit of having seen Jesus with our own eyes and handled Jesus with our hands and sat at a table with Him and had a meal with Him. But our confidence is in something far greater than our feelings or our circumstances. Our confidence is in the Lord Jesus who conquered the grave, who gave us the fulfillment of the Scriptures Hundreds of scriptures over hundreds of years. And because of that, we have the testimony we need to trust God's perfect plan. Verse 32, they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road? In other words, while He taught us the scriptures. And when He opened to us the scriptures. They said the more He talked about the scriptures and the more we understood the scriptures, the more there was something going on inside of us. And now it all makes sense. It was Jesus the whole time. Verse 33, And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Verse 35, And they then told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. They went and they added their testimony to the testimony of the women and the testimony of Simon Peter and the testimony of the angels. And they said, yes, we too have seen him. He is indeed alive. Friend, the resurrection of Jesus is your road to hope. Because Jesus lives, because Jesus walked out of that tomb alive, because Jesus fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament prophecies, fulfilling them to the detail, Because of His resurrection, that is your road to hope. Whenever you feel discouraged, whenever you feel lost, whenever you don't know how to make sense of this world, go back to the resurrection and say, if Jesus walked out of that tomb alive, I can trust Him with every other detail of my life. If you are skeptical, I don't know if I can believe the Bible, I don't know if I believe the Old Testament, I don't know if I believe these these stories, go back to the resurrection because if that happened, everything else falls into place. He is your, his resurrection is your road to hope. And so what do we do with this? If that is true, what do we do with this? Your homework is start reading the scriptures in light of his resurrection. Read the scriptures in light of his resurrection. Not just the Old Testament scriptures, but now even your New Testament scriptures. Not just the promises that have already been fulfilled in Jesus, but the promises that we yet wait on to be fulfilled in Jesus. The promise of Revelation 21, where God will make all things new. There will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more crying, no more death, no more sorrow. How do we know that's going to happen? Because the resurrection of Jesus is our road to hope. He walked out of that tomb alive. And if he could do that, he could take care of the rest. If he fulfilled plan A, he can fulfill plan B. If he can fulfill the first part of his promised kingdom work, he can fulfill the second part that we're still waiting on. Don't put your confidence in your circumstances. 
Don't put your confidence in your feelings. Don't put your confidence in what you can understand. Put your confidence in the living Lord Jesus and the promises of his word. And you will discover his resurrection is your road to hope. Let's pray together. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Maybe today, as a follower of Jesus, you want to rededicate your life to him. And get serious about studying his word. That's why we encourage you to be a part of a worship service like this every week. To feed on God's word. Get involved in a small group we call our small group ministry. Where you can study the scriptures together with other believers. In a practical, meaningful way. That's why we encourage you to have a time every day where you open up the Bible. Even if it's just for five minutes and you read it. And you pray. And you think about what Jesus is saying to you in the pages of his word. And maybe today for the first time in your life you need Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I'm going to encourage you today, put your confidence in Jesus. The one who loved you enough to die for you on the cross, rise from the dead. And makes his grace and forgiveness available right now. If you will simply trust him. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your promises fulfilled in Jesus and the promises that you've yet to fulfill, but because of his resurrection, we have hope they will be fulfilled. And we thank you for Jesus and we thank you for his word. And the more we get to know the word of God, the more we get to know Jesus. And so help us, Father, to rededicate ourselves to being people who draw closer to you in reading and studying the scriptures. God, if there's anybody in this room today who needs you, or if there's someone watching or listening today online who needs you to be their Savior, I pray that right now, before it's too late, they would say, Dear Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I trust your finished work on the cross of Calvary and your resurrection. I trust you to forgive me of my sin and to come into my life and to be my Lord and my Savior. And I don't want to be ashamed of you. I want to learn more about you so I can live for you. In Jesus' name we all pray and everyone said, Amen.